Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood sub-genres, Gangster Rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is the king of memorabilia, Jeff Gold. Jeff, good to have you on the podcast. Good to be here, Bob. Okay, so there's all this scuttlebutt about Elvis, that the value of his memorabilia is going down because his audience is dying off. Is that true? To some extent, yes, and to some extent, no. The A-level stuff is going for more than it's ever gone before. The mid-range stuff is kind of deteriorating. The low end of the market is really deteriorating. So um, people want the best stuff and they're willing to pay crazy prices for it. So it's just like concert tickets. It's the cheaper ones that are harder to sell. So you have a website, Record Mecca. Tell us how you developed the website. Well, uh, (laughs) as a teenager, I started buying uh, rare Jimi Hendrix records or Jimi Hendrix records. And I started trying to collect as many as I could find. And that entailed going to swap meets and going to flea markets and uh, talking to anybody who might have anything. And uh, along my travels, I started finding things that I recognized were rare and buying them to sell them to pay for my rare Jimi Hendrix records. And uh, this turned into a business for me as a kid. And so I would go to England once a year, twice a year, bring a suitcase full of rare American stuff, sell it and trade it for rare English stuff, bring it back and sell that in the Hollywood swap meet, which was in the shadow of the Capitol Records Tower. And I was making a lot of cash for a young person. And I went to work for Rhino Records. That was the first employee where I met you and uh, just became an entrepreneurial guy. Uh, and was doing this. It was getting bigger and bigger. I opened up an office. I started doing mail order. But when I graduated from college, I thought, I really don't want to be going to the Salvation Army in Oxnard and buying Who 45s as a 50-year-old. So I got a business degree from USC, uh, leveraged that into a job at AM Records, but was continuing to collect things the whole time. And when I left the record business after 
18 or 19 years at A&M and then Warner Brothers, I was still collecting records. I had gotten very heavily into the pre-internet online world and then the internet online world, which sidebar, we started the first participation in that at Warner Brothers, myself and a few other people. And so I just got whole hog back into it. And uh, it was the early days of eBay and the early days of uh, web browsers. And uh, I never stopped. Okay. So at this point in time, well, let's go back to the beginning. So you're from LA. How old were you when you started to trade records, sell records? Maybe 15. And how old were you when you made your first trip to the UK? Uh, 19. Okay. So what was it like growing up in the classic rock era in Southern California where a lot of this scene was happening? It was fantastic. Um, people sold bootlegs at swap meets. The, the record swap meet that I talked about before initially started on Sunday mornings and everybody was getting more and more competitive and would get there at, you know, I'll get there at seven, I'll get there at six, I'll get there at five. And eventually, People, including myself, started getting there at 10 o'clock at Saturday night and spending the night in your car, uh, hanging out with your friends so you could get the best position, be there when people opened up, get the earliest stuff, started selling earliest, earlier. Uh, I remember Al Wilson from Canned Heat uh, would set up there and had, had a beat up old van and would sell posters. Uh, it was the Wild West, and it was fantastic. There were used record stores everywhere, which I know you experienced. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm going to write a blog post on what record collecting was like in the pre-internet days for those younger people. Uh, you know, I collected Hendrix records. That was my first priority. And then David Bowie records. There were no discographies. You had to find somebody who knew somebody who had something or had heard of a rare record and track them down. and call them on the phone enough till they uh, and find something they wanted so you could trade it from them or pry it out of their uh, pry it out of their hands but it was very very exciting okay i read a whole book written by some college professor about al wilson supposedly he was even though uh bob height the big large guy was lead singer of canteed and although al wilson sang the hits that al wilson was like a real blues purist who knew everything about it was, you know, a driving force in that world. Is that something you're aware of? You know, I know those guys were very serious record collectors and uh, music obsessives. And I actually bought a poster collection from Larry Taylor, who was the bass player in Can't Heat. And he had just incredible stuff that he would pick up. You know, he was one of those guys. I also bought a lot of stuff from the widow of Sterling Morrison from the Velvet Underground. And occasionally you'd find people like that who just wanted everything having to do with their band and would, uh, as, as Sterling's wife told me, you know, if they didn't have a poster for him to take home, he'd rip it down off the wall. And, you know, most artists, as you know, don't care about this stuff. I did some consulting for Bill Wyman of the Stones, who's one of the probably the preeminent guy who saved absolutely everything. And, uh, I love talking to those guys. Let's stay with Wyman for a second, because he okay. he had everything. They did a movie about him. And then all of a sudden, he decided to sell stuff. What was going on there? You know, I have an NDA with Bill Wyman, if you can believe that. But uh, a non-disclosure agreement. But suffice to say, he had just an enormous amount of stuff, has an enormous amount of stuff, and sold some, but certainly far from all. 
And uh, that movie, The Quiet One, really shows the depths of his collecting. It's it's really amazing if people haven't seen it. Well, to the degree you can talk about it, what kind of relationship did you have with Bill Wyman relative to his collection? Uh, I was consulting with him, and I spent a week at his side going through stuff, which was probably the greatest thrill in my fanboy record collector music business life. He remembers everything. He's kept a diary since he was 10. Uh, Just unbelievable. And what did he want from you? What was he hiring you to do? You know, I really can't talk about that, unfortunately. I just have to be respectful to him. Okay. Okay. So let's go back. Let's leave memorabilia aside. So you grow up in LA. How did you actually get into music? My parents had a suitcase stereo and they bought uh, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass Records. And I remember uh, hearing The Lonely Bull, which was on his Lonely Bull album, his first hit, and just going nuts over it. I just became obsessed with that song to play it over and over and over again as a six or seven year old. And uh, it was amazing later going to work for Herb and meeting Saul Lake, the guy who had been in a bar mitzvah band with Herb and written that song and just fawning over him, which I imagine didn't happen that often for this guy who was probably 80 at the time. Uh, And then my parents went to Palm Springs and they brought me back as a gift, uh, a Beatles I Want to Hold Your Hand single, pre-Ed Sullivan, because they'd read about it in Time magazine. And that was my first record that I owned myself. And I went nuts and just played that over and over and over. And when they were on Ed Sullivan, I saw that and it blew my mind. And uh, I remember my some friend of my parents had given me a Mr. Ed the Talking Horse record and a couple of Kitty records. And I made my mother take me to the record store they'd come from in Beverly Hills so I could trade them for rock records. And I got Beach Boys Party and maybe the first Beatles album. And uh, I just never stopped. <laughs> the idea that I could own these things and play them over and over and over again that obsessed me was fantastic. Okay, so you wrote a book about Iggy and the Stooges, but you also said that you went to the Whiskey to see the Raw Power Tour in 1973. So when did you start going to concerts, and what did you see? My father took me to concerts by artists he liked. There was a Spanish group called Murray and Miranda who had Songs of the African Velt was what it was called. And I love that record when we went and saw them. Uh, I first started going to records or to, to shows on my own, probably at 15 when I could hitchhike to the Santa Monica Civic. And I remember seeing Mountain and Zephyr. And uh, a little later, when I was in uh, high school, going to see Pink Floyd there, who were, travel- were, were touring on Adam Hart Mother. And I saw free and traffic, uh, reconstituted traffic. And as soon as I got a car, which maybe came when I was 17, I was unstoppable. You know, I was at the Whiskey constantly, uh, where every British prog band known to man played. And uh, I started working at Rhino, what, I was probably 17, and People would give us concert tickets, drop off concert tickets. So I was, I was a wild man once that started. How'd you get the, you know, at this point in time, which is kind of funny for those of us uh, who grew up in LA, or at least from age uh, early 20s, 
you know, Rhino on Westwood Boulevard. Ultimately, there was a label, Harold Bronson, you know, got started with Come to Rhino Records, Wildman Fisher. But people don't understand what a big deal the record store was. So Richard Foos, who started it, started a department in another store and then ultimately went to Westwood Boulevard. What was Rhino Records like and how did you get the job? Okay. So Richard, who's still one of my best friends, had a friend whose father had an army surplus electronics store called Apollo Electronics on Broadway and Third in Santa Monica. And that was and when there sold- was no, that was when the mall was dead with J.J. Newberry. Yes. <laughs> and it wasn't even on the mall. It was around the corner from the mall. But, and so Richard convinced his friend's father to give him an area that I'm going to guess was like 10 by 15 feet to sell used records. And a friend of mine went in there and he was selling bootlegs. And this was a big deal because I had to go to the uh, uh, Rose Bowl swap meet to buy bootlegs. So someplace that I could ride my bike to. Incredible. So I started going in there and befriended Richard. And he would buy cutouts and used records and bootlegs. And we became friendly, very friendly. And uh, sometime in probably late 72 or very early 73 said, hey, I'm going to open a record store. And I said something like, and you're going to give me a job. And he said, okay. And uh, there you go. So he uh, he had rented the, <laughs> there was a guy on Westwood Boulevard who had a Zenith appliance repair store. So if you had a Zenith uh, integrated stereo, and it broke, you would go to this guy. His name was Dave Nyman. And he had very little business. And somehow Richard convinced him to lease him the front half of the store, and he would keep the back half of the store to do his electronics repair. And uh, so I went down and, uh, with, with a friend of mine, and we were helping Richard pound together uh, wooden bins for the records. And he had gone to Aaron's Records and the Rose Bowl Swap Meet and all these places for about a year, saving up inventory to start this store. And uh, myself, his roommate, and a friend of his who was a masseuse were the first three part-time workers, and they lasted maybe a month or two, and uh, I was not going to give this up. I was in high school. I had a job at a record store. I had first pick of the records that got traded in. Uh, it was, as, as you were alluding to, the social scene uh, on the West Side for record collectors. There were people who came four or five times a week waiting to see what came out, what used records were new in the bins, what we had mispriced or missed. And Richard very smartly salted the bins. So he he had a bunch of things like the Live Yardbirds album or the John's Children album that back then were $50 records that maybe now are $100 to $300 records. And he would put them out for $250 just so people would start to talk about the great stuff in the bins. And uh, I made a lot of my friends at that store who are still my friends almost 50 years later. Uh, artists would come and visit us. Uh, you know, if, if Atlantic had the pretty things on tour, there weren't many record stores that cared about the pretty things, but we would go nuts to meet the pretty things or the trogs. Uh, you know, we'd do an in-store. We'd get a lot of people. We would have uh, live shows with our friends, the Angry Samoans, or uh, it, it was just crazy all things uh to all people uh fun thing and and truly the the most fun job i ever had in my life by a mile actually 
What at what point did you start to stock uh, new records in addition to used records? Pretty early on, um, because people came in and wanted new records. And then there were things like Saturday Night Fever, which became these phenomenons that you couldn't not carry. And I remember uh, <laughs> that record was so big. You, I remember a specific instance where you, where this woman who was probably in her thirties came in with a tennis racket and a tennis skirt and a tennis shirt fresh off the courts. And she walked in the store, looked at me and I said, Saturday night fever, it's right over there. And she said, <laughs> how did you know? And it was so evident. This person was so outside the demographic of anybody who would come into our record store. Or you'd, I remember another instance where it's a Sunday morning. Somebody comes in and says, do you have this album by the roaches? Yeah, it's over there. And about 15 minutes later, somebody comes in and goes, do you have this album on the roaches? And you go, they were on Saturday Night Live, right? Yeah. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> you could really kind of gauge what was coming on, what was going on in the world from that little perch behind the counter. I've been to a lot of record stores and they made movies now, high fidelity, whatever. But really, that's not the way it was at most record stores. Maybe there was a person behind the counter or whatever. But- you literally had to be anxious going into Rhino Records because the staff would insult you on what you bought if you didn't. And I was like as guilty of that as anybody, unfortunately. Right, that's what I remember. So you uh, know, I was less evolved. Was anybody uh, policing that, or was everyone side? This was kind of the charm of the uh, store, or what? Nobody was policing that because what Richard did was hire experts in each category. You know, Lee Kaplan ran the jazz, and later Nels Klein, who is famous as the guitarist of Wilco and I was doing the rock and the imports. And uh, it was a store that had personality. You've got to admit that um, that was just part of the shtick. And I think, you know, high fidelity was very much what Rhino was like. Right. The other thing I remember, I remember and we did great. I remember Van Halen playing opening for Nils Lofgren in the Santa Monica civic. And I was kind of laughing like this was black Oak, Arkansas. And then I went into Rhino and the guys behind the counter were raving how great a guitarist Eddie Van Halen was. And I said, whoa, whoa, maybe I have this wrong. <laughs> okay. So how'd you get your job at A&M? So I went to USC and I got a business, was a business major. And my plan was to get a job in the record business. And one of our customers, a guy named Lou Beach came in and said, I know this guy at AM, Jeff Haroff. You should call him. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And I was I'd interviewed for two or three jobs that I hadn't gotten and didn't really want, but was looking for any entry point. And uh, this guy kept bugging me to call his friend Jeff Haroff. And finally I did. And Jeff Haroff, who's now probably my best friend, um, said, okay, come on in, you know, talk to me. And he was the vice president of creative services at that point. So he was responsible for all the album covers, videos, marketing, uh, advertising. And we hit it off instantly. And he said, look, I'd like to hire you. I just fired a bunch of people. That was 1979. And the record business had just expanded hugely on the uh, back of Fleetwood Mac rumors and some of those records and then contracted uh, very dramatically. So Jeff said, I'd love to hire you. I can't hire you. I just fired a bunch of people. How would you like to work for me as a freelancer? And I said, great. So he would give me projects to think about. 
And I would come in once every couple of weeks and meet with him. And then every once in a while, he'd say, send me an invoice for $500. And this was great. I was what, what, sort what, of what, in the record business. What would the projects be? Give me an example. So Squeeze were assigned to A&M. And he was trying to figure out something clever to do with Squeeze. And I go, why don't you make a five-inch Squeeze record? Like Squeezed. And uh, I had this little six-inch Jimi Hendrix record from France. And I brought it in and showed it to him. He loved that idea. So they made a five-inch Squeeze record for Cool for Cats or one of those songs. That kind of thing. Um, Tim Curry's recording a new album. Bring me some songs that might be interesting for him to cover. Which was fantastic. I mean, I was getting paid what I thought was a fortune for this. And after about nine months, he said, you know, I should get Gilfries and the president of AM to hire you. That was the job I had, Jeff had. And so he had Gil take me out to lunch. And uh, this turned into probably six different meals with Gil every three weeks or so. And one day he says to me, Maybe we'll get you a desk in sales. And I said, whoa, does that mean you're hiring me? And he goes, oh, yeah, I was always going to hire you. Uh, so I got hired as his assistant, which was the greatest job in the world. Um, Jeff had had it. A guy named Michael Leon, who ran a on the East Coast, had it. And uh, I had it. And then uh, the gig was, after you had this job, you had to find your replacement. And I went and got Tom Corson, who worked at IRS, and helped him get that job. Who now runs Warner Records. Yeah. And uh, I, the job was basically doing everything he didn't have time for. So you'd read his mail, respond to the low-hanging fruit stuff, bring things to his attention in the company that you thought you needed to know about, um, travel with him. You know, he had a secretary, but you were the person sitting at his side helping him navigate his day-to-day responsibilities. The, the workload was so great. And uh, that too was an incredible job. And he was uh, probably the most important man in my life in terms of teaching me things and being able to emulate him and empowering me. You know, I did things like, you know, funny enough, the, the maybe six months into the job, I got the tape of Brian Adams' album, You Want It, You Got it, Advanced Cassette. I'd never heard of him. I listened to it and I went to Gil. I said, I know anything about this guy. He's signed by the Canadian company, but this has one AOR classic after another, as far as I'm concerned. Gil said, all right, fly him and his manager down. That's your project. So I flew Brian and Bruce Allen, his manager, down and they became my project. And so I could say to Gil, they're trying to get the kinks toured. He'd get on the phone with whoever the agent was and try to make that happen. And uh, I'd talk about him in the marketing meetings, and he was a non-entity there. And at one point, Charlie Miner, the late great head of promotion, came down to my office, grabbed me by my shirt, and lifted me up against the door and said, if you ever mention that guy's name again, I'm going to kill you. And three years later, he'd sold 15 million albums, something like that. So Gil was very empowering in letting you... Uh, decide what you wanted to do and and uh supportive of going after welcome to 500 greatest songs a podcast based on rolling stone's hugely popular influential and sometimes controversial list 
I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and sociopolitical factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So ultimately, Aeroff leaves and you get that job. What's that like? So I worked for Gillis's assistant. Then AM started a film company, which was very successful. It had Birdie, which won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. And we made The Breakfast Club. And at some point, Gil came to me and said, do you want to work halftime for the film company as the music guy? And I said, sure. Not because I had any interest in the movie business, but because everybody I knew had interest in the movie business. And what I hadn't figured on was this meant I had to read a script every day. So I had to wake up at six, read a script till 7.30, then go to work. And uh, I remember one series of meetings where somebody was coming in and saying, somebody stand up, we're going to do a remake of Alice in Wonderland. We've got Madonna attached. And I'm going, oh, this sounds stupid. And then two, two meetings after that, somebody comes in and says, we're making a remake of something else. We've got Madonna attached. And I remember thinking, wow, we're in the music business. We just exaggerate. These guys lie. Um, and after about six months, I went to Gill and said, I'm not into this. I want to work in the record business full time. No problem. And so Jeff Aroff left and I was nominated and uh, Gill came to me to run 
first, the alternative marketing. We started an alternative marketing department, actually. I started it, and it was the first one in the music business to work on bands that weren't getting the full attention of Charlie and the higher-ups in the company. So we worked on Simple Minds and Suzanne Vega and OMD and acts like that and had success. And then the idea was we'd get something going and then hand them off to the company at large. At some point, Bob Reitman, who's the head of marketing, leaves. And Gil comes to me and says, I want you to be the head of marketing too. Great. So I leave, uh, I leave his assistant job and I become the head of marketing, which is where you and I really started to work together. And uh, at some point, Jeff Eroff leaves and uh, I get nominated to be the head of creative services too. And neither of these jobs did I have any experience at. They just threw you in and supported you. And uh, I did that. So I was in charge of advertising, marketing. Uh, all the merch stuff, uh, album covers, and videos, which was a big portfolio of stuff and kind of very heady stuff to learn while doing. But I had Gil was a very creative guy, and I could call on Jeff Eroff, and uh, somehow I figured it out. Okay. How do you ultimately decide to decamp to Warner Brothers? I thought AM was going to be my uh, entirety of my career. I was so close to Gil personally as well as professionally. And uh, I had had, uh, uh, through my friend Gary Borman, I'd been approached by Warner Brothers. And I'd gone and had a meeting, but I decided, you know, I just don't want to leave Gil and this company where I know everybody and all my friends are. And at some point, uh, and periodically, uh, people from the press would call and say, there are rumors AM's going to get sold. And Gil would always say, not going to happen. And I'd go back and say, not going to happen. And one day those rumors turned out to be true. And AM was sold by Herb and Jerry to Polygram. And it was clear that uh, even though everybody was saying, everything's going to stay the same, no problem. Uh, I remember meeting with Alon Levy, who was the uh, head of Polygram in Europe. And he was really a dismissive, rude guy. And he was interrogating you. It was almost like the Gestapo. He'd say, tell me about this. And you'd start talking and he'd say, enough. Tell me about this. And I just thought, this is not a good vibe. This guy's going to be the boss of our bosses. And at some point, it becomes clear that the AM of old is not going to be the AM of new. And I start talking to Mo Austin and Lenny Warnicker and Michael Austin, Warner Brothers. And they're willing to make me a senior vice president and double my salary. And Warner Brothers and AM are the two companies I ever wanted to work for. And Mo was somebody I was always fascinated by, having signed Hendrix on down. And so I made the tough decision that I was going to leave my mentor and go to work for Warner Brothers. And the day I was going in to quit, I had gone to my shrink to prepare for this very difficult conversation. And we had an off-the-lot meeting, and Tom Corson called me and said, Jerry just fired Gil. What? I was going to go quit today. Jerry just fired him. Call Gil. And I called Gil, and I said, you're not going to believe this. And Gil said, oh, fantastic. You can walk into Jerry's office, and it'll be, I fired Gil. Now his number one, one of his number one guys is leaving. And I went in and quit to Jerry, 
who I had, you know, a, not a close relationship with. I was closer to Herb and Gil. And uh, so the timing worked out beautifully. Okay. Sidebar. You drove that Alfa Romeo Alfetta. What, I what had a, a, a GTV6 and I had a Spider, but not an Alfetta. I thought you had an Alfetta. It must have been somebody else on the lot. Okay, you go to work. At, but I had uh, two Alphas, so you're right. And how bad were they? Uh, <laughs> the Spider was really good. The GTV6 required a bunch of work, but I enjoyed it. I liked them. Okay. So was it culture shock going to Warner Brothers or did you fit right in? It was total culture shock, but not for the reason you might expect. At AM, Gil had his hands in absolutely everything. So I might hear from him five times a day. Uh, this is when I'm doing marketing and creative services. And then at the end of the day, all the senior vice presidents would go to his office and do kind of a debrief for about an hour. When I went to work for Mo, he was very decentralized. He hired people he thought knew what they were doing and just let them know what, let them go. And so I was so used to, hey, Gil, I'm going to do this. How about that? I think we should do this. What are you doing about this, Jeff? Mo didn't want to know. He just felt like, you know, that there was a once a week meeting of vice presidents and senior vice presidents. And everybody would go around the table talking about what they were doing. And then there was a Thursday senior vice president's meeting that was called Korea because everybody said it just goes on forever like the Korean War. And that was about four hours. And those were the opportunities where if you had a question for Mo or Lenny or the head of business affairs, David Alchul, or wanted to let everybody know what you were doing, you did them in that forum. And otherwise, you just did what you did. And uh, they didn't want to know about the everyday quotidian decisions that Gil did. So it was culture shock in that way, but I adapted to it. And Mo was a genius, uh, smartest guy I ever met in the music business, and uh, knew exactly what he was doing. How did Mo evidence his genius? This is a real story. We're sitting in that Monday vice president's meeting, and Tom Rafino, the uh, late head of uh, international says, uh, oh, Rod Stewart's touring Germany uh, and it's going to be a huge tour. They're going to do a huge TV advertising campaign and they're going to release the greatest hits in Germany only. And Mo turns to David Alchel, the head of business affairs and says, seems to me when we renegotiated Rod's contract about seven years ago, there was a provision for a greatest hits. And I just want to make sure that this German greatest hits doesn't kill our ability to put out a worldwide greatest hits later. And you're thinking, how does this guy keep all this stuff in his mind? Just exceptional. And, uh, you know, he's trying to sign the Red Hot Chili Peppers and he's taking them to Laker games and they're sitting on the court and uh, he's pursuing them heavily and they decide to go with the money and sign with CBS, Columbia. And instead of being pissed, Mo calls each of them individually and congratulates them and tells them he's sorry we couldn't make a deal, but he wishes them all the best. It was wonderful to get to know them, and he hopes he sees them in the future. And uh, so as CBS starts negotiating the contract, the way I heard it, they start 
backing out of some of the commitments they made. And well, yeah, we said that, but really it's got to be, you know, four out fourth album kind of thing. And the chili peppers start to say, you know, these guys promised us the world and now they're starting to go back on it. Mo was the greatest guy in the world. Even losing us, he called each of us individually. Fuck that. We'll go to Warner Brothers. Who is that? I don't think he was being strategic either. I think that's who he was, is. But um, it ends up with the Chili Peppers coming to Warner Brothers and enormous success because Mo was a class act who could see the future and a very strategic guy. Okay, Lenny was originally a producer, in our guy, maybe a little bit before that, but made his bones. He was a, a song plugger before that. Right. But he was working with Russ, Russ Titleman, whatever. And then they promote him to president. Does that happen during your tenure or before? Before. Okay. So what was Lenny's everyday role? Lenny was the music guy. Mo was the business guy. Lenny was the music guy. So artists would come in and talk to Lenny about their records. He ran, he was the head of the A&R department. Um, he was a vibe, is a vibe guy, and also just unbelievably impressive at talking to artists, being able to say to an artist, the album's great, but you need two more tracks, and here's what they need to accomplish without pissing an artist off, which is a unique talent. Um, he would really get in the weeds with people making records. He's brilliant at that. Okay, so needless to say, as we say in the business, there's a lot more product at Warner Brothers. So how did you manage dealing with such workload? I had a lot more people, and I worked really long hours. It was an incredible workload at Warner Brothers. We released a ton of records. Um, a lot of people worked very long hours uh, making sure that that happened. And uh, you prioritize like anywhere else. So where along this timeline do you meet your wife and how do you meet her? I meet her at A&M Records. So I'm working for A&M. I've got to go to Boston and then New York. Uh, I have to go buy a suitcase. I call a friend of mine to see if he wants to go have lunch and buy a suitcase. We do. He mentions that his girlfriend, who I'm close friends with, has a friend visiting from New York. Uh, we go over to their house. I meet Jody there, and she has caught the bouquet at a wedding the night before. <laughs> She'd come out for a wedding. And I really liked her, and she was in New York. So I flew to Boston that day, and for a couple of days, I was kind of ruminating, wow, I really liked her. Maybe she liked me. I'll call Steve. And I call Steve, and he said, she really liked you. You should call her. You're going to New York. So I call her to ask her out, um, left a message on her phone machine, never heard back. Get to New York, call her. She says, yeah, she'll go out with me. We have dinner, hit it off. And that starts it all. And after the fact, I find out that she had actually called me at the hotel in Boston, left a message. She couldn't go out. I, she couldn't go out with me, but felt since I was being so persistent, she would. When in fact, I had never got the message. Somebody forgot to slide the slip under the uh, door as they used to do back then. And I would have never pursued her had she said no. So. This whole uh, family of mine and these two grown kids exist because some bellman at the Copley Plaza didn't slide a, a little note under my door. 
Do you know why she said no the first time? She was breaking up with her boyfriend and uh, felt weird about it. Now, but she comes from a lot of history in the music business. What was she doing then? And your father-in-law, did he impact you at all? Yes. So Jody's father was Larry Utall, who owned Amy Mala and Bell Records, uh, which were the precursors, as you pointed out, uh, of Arista. And uh, I had never heard of him when I met her, but we soon got into a conversation about that. She had worked for her father's next label, Private Stock. And in her one A&R thing that she ever did, found Blondie and brought it to her father and said, we should sign these guys, which he did. And so uh, pretty soon in this conversation, we realized, I told her I was going to New York. And one of the reasons was to meet Hal Wilner, a uh, late great record producer. And she said, I know Hal. And so our first conversation was about this guy we knew mutually. And she had grown up in the music business and so could relate to that. And, and ironically, um, my youngest daughter is engaged to a music business manager, which means that my daughter will have married somebody in the music business. My Her mother, Jody, married me, a guy in the music business. And her grandmother married her father, Jody's father, a guy in the music business. And Jody's grandmother was a singer in the Ziegfeld Follies. So we're going on four generations now. Right. Okay. So Warner Brothers, you know, is going along. Let's just stop for one thing. Uh, I know Mo's take on Prince. What was the take on Prince with him wanting to put out more product? The label saying no, him say painting slave on his face. What was it like inside the building? Well, I was in the middle of all that. Prince was the only genius, true genius I ever worked with. Um, and I had a, I have a funny story about our first meeting, but it's like five minutes long. You want it? Well, if it's that good, tell it. Okay. So uh, Prince has had a couple of stiff records and Mo and Lenny and Michael Austin, who's the head of A&R, meet with them and say, look, you've got to have some A&R input. Your next record is not life or death, but very, very important. And that becomes Diamonds and Pearls. And they're working very closely with him. And Mo and Lenny and Michael are keeping us up to date on all this. And uh, they're very convinced they've got a, a Prince record with multiple hits. And I'm at the label maybe six months. And uh, they, they would circulate the artwork that somebody had submitted if we weren't doing it in-house for the album cover. And imagine, if you will, I, I open this uh, envelope and I've got the new Prince album cover. And it's a tight photo of his face from kind of his forehead down to his chin. And he's making kind of the peace sign with his fingers reversed with his tongue sticking out of the middle. It's just a ridiculous photo. And so I go to Lenny's office and I said, I think this is, you know, you guys have spent so much time on this record. This photograph that he wants on the album cover is laughable. It's ridiculous. And he said, go have a meeting with Prince. Okay. So uh, Benny Medina is the head of, Black A&R and the Prince contact. So Benny sets up a meeting a couple days later and Prince, uh, I come in and Benny has an office that looks like a cave with no windows. And the setup is he, Benny's sitting at his desk and across from his desk, uh, perpendicular to it are two couches uh, apart from each other. And Prince is sitting on one and I'm sitting on the other one. 
And Prince looks as if he has come off stage or is about to bound on stage. He's wearing full hair, makeup, uh, full stage clothes, which he always did. I later found out. And Benny starts saying, um, well, Jeff's our new head of uh, creative services, and he thinks your album cover maybe could be better. And then there's bam, bam, bam on the door. And into the door walks Benny's lawyer, who's renegotiating Benny's contract at Warner <laughs> Brothers. It says, I need to talk to you right away. And Benny proceeds to leave for the entirety of the meeting. So I'm sitting across from Prince, uh, who's a guy I have great admiration for, but is, a, by all accounts, a difficult guy to deal with. And uh, Benny has just told him I don't like his album cover. And he's this is a guy who knows how to use silence and intimidate people. And he, he's developed this to a fine art. So he looks at me and says, so what do you think I should do? You think I should wear overalls like R.E.M.? <laughs> or a band on the label who clearly did not wear overalls, but yeah. Well, no, I was thinking, and you know, it's just devolving. Is you think you wear good clothes? Maybe I should get you clothes like yours. Send me your sizes. And he's wearing uh fuchsia, they look like ski pants, they're skin tight pants with a, a loop around the bottom under his boots, and a see-through uh chartreuse sh pinstriped shirt. And uh, is just kind of baiting me. And at some point he says, show me something you've done. I go, okay. So I go up to my office and I pull together all these CDs that I had art directed. <clears throat> and they were mostly from A&M because I hadn't been at Warner Brothers that long. And he's, I bring down maybe a foot high stack. And he's looking at them making dismissive comments. This is, you know, not saying this is shit, but that's essentially what he's saying. Why would I want to do this? Who would think this is a good idea? And he gets near to the bottom and he finds this holographic album of CD cover that I'd done for Suzanne Vega for Days of Open Hand that I actually, she and I and Thomas uh, and Len Peltier worked on it, won a Grammy for Art Direction. And after dismissing the first 15 of these, he looks at this hologram and is kind of mesmerized and says, this is good. Why can't I get a hologram? And by some miracle, I had met maybe a month before with a guy working for a company. You, you'd have these meetings who had a new technology to make holograms cheaply. And I said, well, maybe you can get a hologram. What do you mean? And I explained to him. And he said, all right, give me a hologram. And so the, this hour and a half uh, torture session ended up on a slightly positive note. So I call this guy uh, from the hologram company and said, how would your company like to launch their new technology on the new album from Prince? What? And I explained to him, I said, but you're going to have to really make this economically viable for us. They did. And we ended up putting out diamonds and pearls with this holographic cover. And Prince actually sent me a thank you note, which is something that his assistant said she had never seen him do that says, the more I look with an eye eyeball, the more I like with another eyeball, thank you for the cool cover, Prince. And it's on this little piece of station and it says, from the desk of Prince. So after that, I was one of the few people at Warner Brothers that Prince talked to. And uh, Mo and Lenny leave eventually. And so, and Benny leaves and Michael Austin leaves. 
And so maybe it's me and one or two other people that Prince talks to. And uh, well, actually, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So um, one day, Mo walks in and says, I have a meeting with Prince. He wants to be a vice president of this company. So I said, sure, you're a vice president. So Prince becomes a vice president of Warner Brothers and uh, shows up to a couple of the Korea meetings. And one of them I remember because it was the day Magic Johnson announced he had AIDS or was HIV positive. And uh, we had this giant projection screen TV and all of us were mesmerized. Those guys were big basketball fans. And we we're watching the live coverage of this with Prince, who for a very short period of time pretended to be an A&R guy. But he was giving us so much product and we had his label, Paisley Park. Why not? And uh, then at another point, Prince decides, you know, I want to get my master's back and goes to Mo and they say, no, you can't get your master's back. We pay you millions of dollars every time you give us a record. If you were, when you were renegotiating nine months ago, maybe we could have discussed that, but no. So Prince decides he's going to change his name and then claim that Warner Brothers has signed Prince, but the symbol is, is a different artist who can sign to a different record label. And we're having fun with this because the name Prince is gone. So we do these little computer floppy disks with the symbol and send it out to the press so they can uh, write articles about him and not use Prince. And uh, when he, when I needed to call him, I'd call his office and say, hi, it's Jeff Gold from Warner Brothers. Is Prince there? Knowing that his uh, people who work for him couldn't use the name or somebody would call from Paisley Park and say, Hi, my boss is on the phone. It's who, who is that? You know, my boss. <laughs> so uh, obviously that doesn't fly. But eventually Mo and Lenny leave and Michael leaves and, and Benny leaves. And I'm one of the few guys he talks to. And uh, I remember having a conversation with him where he's complaining. It was just the two of us. And he was complaining. And, and I'm going to paraphrase this, but it was, you know, everybody looks at these albums I put out as, uh, you know, kind of being delivered from the mount in these great statements, but I'm just recording all the time. And when I get enough songs that I think make an album, uh, I put out an album and I don't understand why I can't just do that whenever I want. And I said, well, when you renegotiated, you're getting two, $3 million, whatever it is per album. And we've got to be able to recoup that money. And if you're giving us three albums a year and we're giving you $9 million, we can't possibly release the number of singles and market these things the way we need to market them uh, to make our money back and, and be profitable. And he knew what I was saying. He was a very, very smart guy. And I knew what he was saying, but it was kind of one of the few moments where he let down his guard and was vulnerable. And I remember when he did the, Gold Experience album, I think. Either that or the Come album. Maybe it was the Come album. We had a marketing meeting with Prince to discuss. He was touring and, and the marketing of that album. And he sat next to me because I was the only person in the meeting who had a relationship with him. And at some point, and this was the only time he really broke character, he whispered in my ear, make this big. I need the money. And you really never saw Prince break character. You know, he was literally every time I ever saw him, 
he could have gotten on stage and started performing. He was fully made up to the nines and uh, dressed as exactly as if he was on stage. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, in any event, you referenced all of a sudden there's all this turmoil in the music business. You know, Doug Morris gets power. He's kicked out. Bob Morgato's manipulating everything. What was it like inside the building? And what was it like when Mo and Lenny decided to go? It was terrible. So Steve Ross, who ran uh, Warner's and then Time Warner, uh, had gotten ill and died. And uh, the, the head of the Warner Music Group was this guy, Bob Morgato, who Mo did not get along with. So Mo had a special side deal that while the heads of Electra and Atlantic had to report to Bob Morgato, Mo did not have to. So Steve Ross dies and Morgato uh, sees his opportunity and uh, convinces Jerry Levin, who takes over Time Warner, that he really needs Mo Austin to report to him. 
And the, Bob Borgato knew nothing about the music business and would give interviews after, after the Grammys when Madonna wins a bunch of Grammys saying, well, I authorized her signing. Or, you know, I, I authorized her re-signing. So uh, when Morgato uh, convinces Jerry Levin that it's in his best interest to have Mo report to him. Mo says, forget it. I'm not re-signing. I'm done. And nobody can believe this, but Jerry Levin backs up Morgato and Mo leaves. And for a while, uh, Lenny is going to take over. And we think, well, this is a tragedy, but at least Lenny's going to take over. Lenny eventually decides, no, I'm going to leave and start a record label with Mo DreamWorks. So then uh, Danny Goldberg comes in who I knew from a and And Danny actually promotes me and Howie Klein and Stephen Baker and Rich Fitzgerald in an effort to keep us and gives us big raises so he can project stability. But he's commuting from New York where he lives every week out to LA. And Doug Morris, uh, in a power play, destabilizes uh, Morgato and Morgato gets fired and Doug takes over. And, and this continues. So the music group has been run by Morgato for a long period of time, but Mo has been independent. And then you've got uh, Morgato seizing power and then Doug seizing power from Morgato. And then Michael Fuchs seizing power from uh, uh, Doug. And then uh, uh, Bob uh, Daly and Terry Simmel from the picture company. This is in about two years. There are four different people running the music group. And the record company goes from Mo to Lenny to Danny to Russ Thyred, who then has heart failure. So Phil Cordero was brought in. So you've got these companies that Mo ran this for 25 years, and you've got five different people in the next two years running it. So it was very, very unstable. There was lots of speculation about what was going to happen, who was going to take over, what kind of changes there were. And they were very distracting from what we were trying to do, which is break acts and sell records. So how did you, how did it ultimately end with you and Warner Brothers? Everybody's dream come true at this time was to get fired with time on your contract. This had happened to two of my closest friends, Hale Milgram and Jeff Aroff, who got essentially paid to go home and do nothing. And uh, the job was getting more and more stressful as I was, I got uh, eventually made the executive vice president and general manager of Warner Brothers. So I was the number two guy and Steve Baker was the president. That happened with Danny. And so uh, my time went from being 30% administrative, 70% creative, reversed. So I was doing things like signing independent promotion bills and uh, arguing with the CFO about why uh, a secretary couldn't get a raise. And it was really not fun, but I was being paid well. So uh, when the fifth person from the person who hired me took over. Uh, I uh, was confronted by Phil Cordero, who said, look, Russ and I feel like maybe you'd be better in another job. What would you like to do instead? And this was, you know, I had a contract that said I was the executive vice president general manager, or they were in breach and had to fire me. I had two years left on my deal. So I said, fire me. I don't want another job. And that's what happened. I had become a Buddhist about three years before that. I realized Every year I was working was probably two years off of my lifespan, but the money was good and I had a young family and uh, 
I, I, my contract auspiciously expired December 31st, 1999. <laughs> I thought when that is over, I'm out of here and I'm going to find something less stressful to do. And meanwhile, I'm going to bank every penny I can. So what happened two years before me, I had these role models in Hale and Jeff and I couldn't have been happier. Okay. So how did this ultimately segue into the memorabilia business? So as I described, I started off collecting rare records and memorabilia. And I continued to do that during the record business years. And it was great because I could fly all over. Everything I bought was tax deductible. I was deep into the internet. And so my deal with Warner Brothers said, as long as I didn't have another job, they had to pay me uh, what my contract specified. So I thought, okay, I'm not going to get another job, but I can be entrepreneurial. What am I into? Rare records and memorabilia, the internet, stereo equipment, and computers. All four things, very simple to uh, cluster those together and start right back up where I left when I was in the, uh, when I went to AM and starting selling rare records and memorabilia, but at a much higher level because I was much better capitalized. And uh, so I started a website. I started selling on eBay very early on. And uh, <laughs> this is going to be my retirement job and it's become my kind of out of control uh, retirement job that I'm constantly trying to not work more than I want to work, but I love it. Uh, Okay. One has to ask how lucrative is this relative to working for the labels? Well, I don't make as much money as I did working at the record companies, but it's very lucrative. Okay. So when you first go online, et cetera, with eBay, what kind of stuff are you selling? Rare records, um, there's a big market for first pressing rare records. And the best analogy is um, rare books. So, you know, somebody might pay an extreme amount of money for, well, I'll give you an example. Um, The Beatles' first album anywhere in the world is Please Please Me in England. For reasons that had nothing to do with the Beatles, it came out on Parlophone in a, on a label that was black background with gold printing. And Parlophone decided to change their label design about two months in. They also, the first pressing of Please Please Me had erroneous copyright uh, credits for a few songs, uh, crediting them to Dick James music when they were actually Northern songs of the Beatles company. So somebody will pay a huge premium for a gold parlophone copy of Please Please Me that came out two months before a black and yellow copy. And they'll pay an even bigger premium if it has the first mistaken credits on it. And then they'll pay an exponential premium if it's a stereo copy because nobody was buying stereo records in 1962. And Condition is so important that let's say I had an absolutely perfect brand new stereo copy of that record. Uh, I could probably get $30,000 for it. If I had a copy that was in very good condition that somebody had taken care of, but had some scuffs and marks still played well, that might be a $7,500 record. So I started selling really rare records 
in the best condition possible. That's what I started with. And then memorabilia as well. So concert posters, documents, signed things. I remember in the 70s passing up a uh, version of Lumpy Gravy and then spending two years trying to find it again and having to buy an import because it was cut out from MGM, whatever. Um, uh, so in any event, everyone knows in the memorabilia world in general that it used to be about like rock tars from England would go from pawn shop to pawn shop. This all went to the internet. So everything became available it was not so much about the hunt, but about buying. Tell us the evolution once we were on the internet of what is available and how you find it, et cetera. So I'll give you an example. <clears throat> There's a, when the Freewheeling Bob Dylan album, his second album is released in 1963. A story breaks that a few copies have been discovered that have four different songs. They aren't listed on the album cover. But uh, what had happened was he'd recorded the album, uh, the beginning with John Hammond and then with Tom Wilson. And then he'd written four more songs, including Blowin' in the Wind. And they had the record all mastered, designed, ready to go. But Tom Wilson thought these songs were so strong that he went in, got him in the studio, he recorded these four songs, and they swapped them out. At one pressing plant in California, somebody didn't get the message. and a few copies got pressed with the old stampers, which had the four original songs. But uh, I, I won't go too in the weeds with this, but the mono copies became instantly very, uh, very, very, very collectible. And the stereo copies, nobody knew they existed. Two have surfaced since 1962. So um, pre-eBay, that was the kind of thing you heard about but never, ever saw a freewheeling Bob Dylan with those four tracks. And I remember somebody knowing somebody in Santa Monica who had one. And I inveigled myself to go over to this guy's house and actually see it. And the only way you can tell is either playing it or looking at the stamper numbers. That record was just impossibly rare. And I was looking for it for maybe seven or eight years. And I had a uh, mail order catalog that I would send out to four or 500 collectors three or four times a year. And uh, everybody would circulate their want list. And I'd say, I will pay a lot of money for this record if anybody has one. And eventually, after, I don't know, seven or eight years, somebody contacted me and I traded him maybe $1,000 worth of stuff for it. Just an impossible to find record. Now, if you're looking at eBay, one a year will show up. So it, it's not, it's still very rare, but it's not impossible. So. Records that were previously virtually unfindable find their way, as you said, with the guitars to eBay and or to auction. And if you're willing to spend the money, you can find them. Records that were sort of rare are now generally pretty common uh, because of eBay and Discogs. People have a uh, easily, it's easy to find out what something's worth, to research it, and to put it up for sale on a forum where people are looking for it. Okay. You talk about freewheeling. Uh, Bob Dylan's girlfriend at the time, Susie Rotolo, is on the cover of that. And if I got this straight, they ultimately sold her record collection and people bought the records she owned. 
and you, you know, are looking at one of them. Right. So what is what is what is that worth? So Susie Rodolo, who was his girlfriend in the early sixties, saved a lot of stuff, and in probably the early 2000s decided she was going to sell some stuff and uh being a big consumer of dylan stuff and uh i've worked for I, I appraised his archive with a colleague i'm very much in the middle of that so i got contacted and the two things i really wanted were two blues albums from 1961 that he had bought in london they were english copies and on the back, he had written above the liner notes, things like written for and about Bob Dylan and read and absorbed by Bob Dylan. And I thought, I've got to have these. And I won them. I think I paid five or $6,000 a piece for them, which I've considered a huge bargain. And they're really interesting because this is Bob Dylan absorbing his influences, acknowledging that writing on the back of the album covers. And at the point where he's bought these records, he's been Bob Dylan for maybe a year, a year and a half. So it's almost like he's trying on his new name. I've actually written an essay about this for a forthcoming book. Um, so I'm really one of my sub collections, personal ones is collecting records owned by artists who I, ins who inspired me. So I've got about 25 of Jimi Hendrix's records, including his Dylan's Greatest Hits with some psychedelic doodling on the back. I've got some of Bill Wyman's records. I've got John Lennon's copy of A Hard Day's Night. I've got uh, some of Sterling Morrison's Velvet Underground records. Um, you know, it's pretty nerdy, but I love it. Okay. So Susie's album, let's assume she had an album from 1962 with no doodling on it. It's just the same as if she bought it at a retail store. Is that worth anything? Absolutely. Um, especially if it's a Dylan album. Um, and I was able to, through the auction house, contact her and say, you know, why was he writing on these records? And she said something to the extent of, it would be as if someone was doodling on the side of a paperback book, you know, writing little notes to themselves. But yeah, people, there are people like me who are interested in records owned by musicians they like. Now she's, one generation away from that, but if it was something she had at the time and that Bob Dylan would have listened to or played, that makes it intriguing. Okay. So at least to me. Yeah. Right. So we know, uh, any of us who have sold or been to record stores that albums that everybody has Fleetwood Mac rumors, Saturday night fever are essentially worthless. Okay. What do people own that is actually worth something? That's not strictly true. The vinyl revival has gotten so out of control that people will pay premium prices for records that sold millions of copies. So if you had a sealed copy of Rumors that was a first pressing, it would probably go for three or $400 now. If you had a Stone Mint first pressing, it's probably a $100 record, which is inconceivable to me because it's one of the best-selling records of all time. Um, I'll tell you the most recent story imaginable. Nirvana's Nevermind came out at a time where very few people were buying vinyl records. So I've, every day I wake up and one of the first things I do is look at the top 40 selling 
records that sold on eBay the day before. Just for those unsophisticated, that's an easy chart to find. Where's that chart? Gripsweat.com. G-R-I-P-S-W-E-A-T.com. So you can see what sold the day before on eBay in descending order of price. And Nevermind has just been going up and up and up the last two or three years. And one sold for $2,000 a couple of years ago, or a couple of months ago, a vinyl copy sold for $2,000. Yesterday, a copy sold for $3,500. Perfect condition. And, and you know, nobody's records are in perfect condition. And if, if they're not, they suffer a lot less. So I wrote to a friend of mine going, God, I just can't believe they're selling for this much. It's nuts. And he said, yeah, that record just keeps going up. So in the middle of the night, last night, I woke up and went, you know, I might have a copy of that. <laughs> and I wrote a note to myself and I got up this morning and I went to my record collection and sure enough, I have an absolutely perfect promo copy of Nevermind. And that's not something I would keep for $3,500. I'm happy to have a reissue of that. It's not a record that's, you know, generationally uh, deep to me. So that's a perfect example of the kind of thing that a non-record collector might have that's worth a lot of money. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. 
for me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay. So, you know, you occasionally go to people, let's talk Ken Barnes. Ken Barnes, very well-known rock writer from the classic rock era. He's got a huge collection. A few questions here. A, he decides to sell. Are most of these people selling because they need the money? And B, how do you find out about it and seize to what degree is this the source of your inventory? I'd rather not talk about Ken. Um, let's talk about it in a theoretical way, but FYI, I bought his fine, collection, fine, fine, or I fine, bought fine. much of his collection. So there aren't that many people who will come over to your house and pay you tens of thousands of dollars for something uh, or, or a collection. A lot of the people who do what I do have stores, and their business model is buy it as cheap as I can and then flip it as fast as I can because they've got overhead. My business model is different. I want to buy the best things and only the best things, and I'll pay more than anybody to get them, and I'll put them on my website, and I don't care if something takes two or three years to sell, uh, if it's something really good. So I'll work with a couple of friends of mine in Los Angeles, if somebody's got a huge collection and there are things that interest me, and I'll buy what I want, and then they'll come in and buy what they want. And I get, you know, once... A couple times a week, I get those kind of calls, but generally people have used record store stock uh, collections that aren't that interesting. But if it's an industry collection or somebody who worked in the media, oftentimes they do have interesting stuff. And I also am very involved with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I will buy things that don't have financial value but have historical value and donate them. Uh, things that I think need preserving. Okay. So the people who are selling these records, what is their main motivation? Money, room, or they just don't want them anymore? All of the above. A lot of times somebody dies. Somebody wants to raise money for a kid who's lost a job recently. I've paid for plastic surgery. I've bought new cars. I've paid for cancer medication. Um, you name it. Okay, so you come in, let's assume to make the numbers uh, round, somebody has a thousand records. Generally speaking, can you cherry pick or does someone want you to buy all a thousand for price and you deal with it? Uh, generally, the way I explain it is if you want me to buy everything, I'll buy it, but you'll make less than if I cherry pick it and then I introduce you to somebody who will come over and, and buy the rest from you. Because you're paying me essentially to do the work that I don't need to do. It's a hassle for me to buy a thousand records, keep a hundred of them, and wholesale out 900. So I'm going to want something for my time. You're going to get more money if I come over, pay you top dollar for that hundred, and then introduce you to somebody who will pay you top dollar for the other 900. Okay. Let's talk about the ultimate a shrink wrapped record. How often do you find a shrink-wrapped record, and how does that affect the price? All the time. And here's, here's my standard example. 
Yesterday and Today in the Beatle, by the Beatles was going to come out originally with a cover showing them with decapitated baby dolls covered in blood. Capital printed them up, got very negative feedback from the media and record store owners, recalled, or actually hadn't sent out the album uh, in most cases, and pasted the trunk cover, an innocuous cover showing them standing around a, a, a trunk over the offending ones. So there, and, and, and they had sent out some of the original ones to reviewers. And they sent out a letter to them saying, oh, mistake, send it back to us, we'll send you a replacement copy, which most of them didn't do. So you can find, or, or what exists in the world are original copies that weren't pasted over, copies that were pasted over that are called second state, and copies that are called third state, where some industrious kid uh, steamed off the old cover, the, the new cover to reveal the old cutter, cover. And these are worth a variety of prices depending on uh, what the condition is. The most desirable one is a stereo, a sealed stereo, not pasted over copy. Uh, the guy who was the president of Capitol at the time, Alan Livingston, kept a number of these. And those are the ultimate ones because <clears throat> they've got a letter from him saying, I'm the president of Capitol. I kept these from the top. So let's say one of those might be worth $100,000. Uh, if I took my fingernail and opened the shrink wrap at the mouth, didn't pull the record out, that's going to mean it's worth $60,000. For the privilege of, or, or the difference of sealed and unsealed, even though nothing else has changed, might reduce the price by 40%. If you took the record out and played it, and the corners were bent up a little bit just through normal handling, that might be worth twenty-five thousand. Uh, if the seams started to split, that might be worth fifteen. Now that's the extreme example, but that shows you how obsessed people are by condition and what a, a extreme premium people pay for rare records that are sealed. Let's uh, stay with the butcher cover for a minute. Let's assume someone steamed off the cover and the album is not in good condition. What is that worth? If they did a so-so job, as most kids did, a couple hundred bucks. If they did a fantastic job or it was done professionally, and there are people literally who do this professionally, 1500 1600 Okay, those of us who were record store savvy, you went into the Tower Sunset, you went in the back room, they had a shrink wrap machine. They sure did. So, and, and, and Charlie Shaw, the manager of Tower at that time, had a motto, there's no such thing as, as a defective record. So they would just re-shrink everything. So the question becomes fraud. To what degree is being sold as shrink wrapped is really not shrink wrapped, and how can you tell? That is an extremely savvy question, Bob. There are a huge percentage of what's sold as sealed isn't, is re-shrunk. Re There's a huge amount on eBay of people selling nonstop 60s records that are supposed to be factory sealed, which aren't. I kind of find the whole phenomenon of sealed records ridiculous because, as you and I know, there are defective records. And if I'm going to pay $1,000 for a record, I want to see what the record looks like. Um, there's a lot of fraud 
And the way you tell the difference is somebody like me stares at it for a very long time. Well, I know someone's what a shit ton of records. You could tell back then what was re-shrunk. You know, I haven't you can't. dealt you're right. And but have you It's gotten, gotten very sophisticated though? That's my I figured. So have you been beaten? Yeah, I've been beaten a couple times. Um but not many. And another quirk about my business model is, and I don't know anybody else who does this, I guarantee everything I sell to be authentic forever in writing, if people ask, and for higher end things in writing anyway. And this has two purposes. One, it ensures the buyers they're getting something that is authentic. And two, it prevents me from buying and reselling anything that I'm not absolutely positive about. If I see something and I'm 90% sure it's good, I'm passing because I don't want that coming back to haunt me. Okay. So have you ever sold something that turned out not to be authentic? It's happened a few times. I almost did actually this week. Uh, I'll show it to you. This... This is audio only, so describe for the audience. I know. Okay. This is a 1965 concert program for Thelonious Monk's first Australian tour. And as you, Bob, can see, it's signed at the top by Thelonious Monk. So I I bought this from a guy in Australia who told me that his uh, friend, now deceased, had gotten it signed. And I looked at the signal. I bought it, got it, looked absolutely genuine, signed in fountain pen. And uh, I sold it to a good customer of mine. I hadn't sent it out. And the next day, somebody sent me an email saying, hey, that Thelonious Monk signed thing you signed, do you have that? Because somebody's got one listed on eBay. And he sent me a link. And I looked at it. It looked almost exactly the same, but there were a few creases in different places. So I wrote to the seller and said, do you actually have that? It was a guy in Australia. Is it possible that I bought that copy and you just didn't take it down. No, I've got this right in front of me. And I said, got that. The autograph has to be printed. And I looked at it through a very high power loop and it still looks like an original autograph. Um, and I did a lot of research and I couldn't find any other copies of it online. But this guy sent me some high resolution pictures of the one he had. And even though I was almost certain it wasn't printed. It clearly has to be printed because there's another one that's identical in every way. So I contacted my customer and said, bad news. I'm refunding your money. I didn't send it out yet. It's fake. I can't think of the last time that happened to me. If ever. Um, but yeah, just happened a couple of weeks ago. So I do. I do. But, you know, the good news is I guarantee everything. So Okay. So. How much inventory do you have and where do you keep it? Uh, I have a fair amount of inventory, but a lot of it is very valuable pieces of paper and records, which don't take up a lot of space and uh, unframed posters. So I have some flat files and I have a big safe and I have a safe deposit box. And uh, I, I'm forever trying to sell fewer, more expensive things. Um, and happily the, what I deal in generally doesn't take up very much space. Okay. So how many vinyl records do you own today? 
in my personal collection, you're looking at it at 2000. Okay. How many of those records you're never going to sell? Well, I'm going to die someday, shockingly. And so, you know, my fantasy is to sell it all right before that happens. I don't know if that'll happen, but those 2000 records are my collection. So I'm, I'm very disinclined to part with any of them. They're hard earned. Uh, a lot of them, I spent a lot of time looking for. A lot of them have stories behind them or souvenirs from travel or owned by friends of mine who are no longer here or uh, owned by artists I admire. So that's my record collection. And if one were to, was knowledgeable like yourself, how many of those are rare and how many just have sentimental value? Hmm, 50% of it's probably, hmm. There are records in there I would be extremely hard-pressed to ever replace. There are records in there that are irreplaceable or the only known copy. There are records in there that are really common. Uh, having found that Nirvana record today, I'm uh, motivated to go look through and wonder if there's anything else that doesn't mean that much to me that's worth a lot of money. But, but generally, those are things that I have a deep connection to and I listen to, you know, probably f five or six albums a day on vinyl. Okay, so how good a system do you have? What do you have? <laughs> I have, <clears throat> I live in a house with just my wife. She never turns on the stereo and I have four stereos with turntables and I have a three floor house. Uh, my best stereo is, <laughs> I was born in 1956 and I thought it would be fun to put together a state-of-the-art 1956 system. And for that, I have some 19, circa 1956 JBL speakers that have been rebuilt that are about three feet tall. I have a Mac, Mac, two Macintosh mono tube amps, a Macintosh uh, tuner preamp, and a um, Thorin's 124 turntable. So that's all circa 1956. And that's my best stereo, I think. Uh, I have some other Macintosh integrated amps. I have a Lin Axis turntable. I have a Riga turntable. Yeah, lesser stuff. But it's great to have stereos all over the house. What do you think of the vinyl revival? It's mystifying to me. It's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. My first book was on classic vinyl records. Um, it's great to see kids excited about vinyl records. It's great to see all these record store day releases coming out. Lots of things you thought you'd never hear or never be able to get on vinyl. It's shocking to me when I look at the 40 biggest selling records uh, from the day before on eBay and seeing over and over and over, Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift record store day records, or uh, reissues of not that uncommon records selling for five hundred, six hundred dollars. Uh, people doing bespoke jazz reissues that sell for five hundred to a thousand dollars. When you could buy for that kind of money a truly rare record, but generally, I think it's very exciting that kids are getting turned on to music. And, and not just kids, and, and records. We grew up in an era where the records were cut analog on tape, ultimately analog format, and you wanted to get the best stereo you can afford. 
Whereas kids frequently have a very poor stereo and they're buying something that was cut digitally that's ultimately pressed on vinyl. What do you think about all that? I think the whole thing's weird. When the Beatles did, when the first Beatles vinyl remasters came out five or seven years ago, I bought some of them and they were doing all this press about how George Martin's son and state of the art, uh, um, remastering and allowed them to tease new information on the tapes. And you could hear, uh, the Beatles, uh, fingers on the strings, the string noise and stuff. And they'd been remixed from the original masters. And I listened to them and I hated them because they didn't sound like the records I, that are imprinted in my mind that I love. And I have a friend who has a very high end audio store at the time at a hundred thousand dollar turntable. And I went a bead, some of my English first pressing Beatle records against those. And I just thought the new ones sounded terrible. They were like science projects. Yeah, there, there's more information, but it's not what the Beatles signed off on in 1965 when they were sitting in the room with George Martin. So generally that stuff doesn't interest me. Um, I buy lots of reissues and I like fine hearing new music by artists I like, but the remastering I mean, the remastering never stops, as you know. You know, there are records that have been remastered, you know, pet sounds four, five, six times. And uh, it just feels very science project detailed. Well, certainly remix, you know, I've been on record and certainly been involved with people on this. It's just crazy. Okay. You've been heavily involved with Dylan's music, both in the uh, museum that opened in Oklahoma and finding unreleased stuff. Tell us about that. He was one of my favorite artists as a kid and still is. I heard a show uh, on YouTube from five days ago in Seattle where he was just sounding unbelievably good. It's just remarkable. This guy at 81 years old is making great music and is still great, still on the road and sounding fantastic. Uh, he's not sounding like he did in 1964, but he's sounding fantastic. Um, I love Dylan records. I bought all the Dylan bootlegs I could find as a kid. I collected rare Dylan records. I wanted that freewheeling so bad. I was willing to pay crazy money for it. Um, I became friendly with a guy named Jason Emmons, who was the curatorial director of the experience music project in Seattle. He put together uh, a museum show called Bob Dylan's American journey that uh, traveled uh, around the United States. That was the only authorized ever Dylan exhibit. It was at the Skirball here in Los Angeles. It was incredible. I was a consultant to it, and I was probably the major, one of the major lenders to it. And through that, I met Jeff Rosen, who uh, manages Bob. And uh, at some point, many years later, uh, he called me up and asked me if I would... Uh, uh, he had a project he was interested in talking to me about, but I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement first. Sure, I did. He told me about Bob Dylan's archive and that it was being had been sold uh, to the George Kaiser Family Foundation in Tulsa, and they were going to open a museum, and he needed somebody to appraise it, and he felt like I probably knew as much about that as anybody and could I do it. 
and uh, this threw me for a total loop, uh, but it was a dream come true project. And I told him I could certainly value the stuff, but uh, when I saw what it constituted, I said, you know, I, I'm not somebody who can write you uh, hundreds of page long appraisal and then defend it to the IRS if, if that happens. But I know somebody who can, Laura Woolley, who's the top entertainment appraiser in the world and a good friend of mine. So uh, I brought her on board and for about six months, we appraised this massive archive. There were 6,000 handwritten things ranging from a note on the back of a business card to the notebooks that he wrote blood on the tracks in or the original manuscript to subterranean homesick blues. And we were holding these things in our hands and, you know, <laughs> it was just breathtaking, literally breathtaking for me. And, uh, I, uh, have done help them with other projects. I, uh, bought the collection of Ralph J. Gleason, who was the, uh, first rock critic in America and uh, in his had died, but he was one of those guys who saved literally everything. And in his archives, in his basement, I found a bunch of Bob Dylan tapes that had come from Dylan, who he was friendly with and other people. And um, I had to, a lot of them were poorly labeled. So I rented a recording studio and went and listened to stuff. And there was one that just said, Dylan Brandeis on the side in pencil. And I Googled it and I couldn't find anything about that. He played Brandeis University, but that was it. And it turned out to be a professionally recorded stereo recording of Bob Dylan at Brandeis University about a month before Freewheeling came out. Perfect quality. And my jaw dropped when I was listening to this in the studio. And, you know, I find tapes like this and I always, my first stop is always to go to the artist. And so I called Jeff Rosen up and I told him and uh, I made a deal with him and myself and the Gleason family for them to buy that tape. And it got released as Bob Dylan at Brandeis University in 1963. And it was just shocking to me that I could be you know, little fanboy Jeff uh, buying these bootlegs all of a sudden is uh, responsible for a Bob Dylan album being released. And I found other tapes that had been released and, that I've sold to artists, but that was the peak for me. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles. 
podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Hosted by MC8 and Big Steels every Thursday, each episode provides an in-depth exploration into the formative artists, monumental albums, and socio-political factors that have shaped gangster rap from its emergence in the 80s to its enduring impact today. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form. We dive into the socio-cultural aspects that gangster rap boldly addressed, from police brutality to systemic racism, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the profound cultural significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. Let's go. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Mr. Worldwide himself, Pitbull. A lot of artists in general, people that are very creative, sometimes tend to overthink. That's one of my number one rules. Don't ever overthink. You can think ahead, but don't overthink. And what I mean by that is when they start to write a record, they're like, oh, that's not the line. Oh, that's not this. Oh, it's not that. And everybody has a creative process. I'm not knocking it. For me, I just let it flow. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Okay, you also, you know, Rhino Records label and Rhino have been sold years past. You also implore them to release some of the stuff you find. What's that experience been like? Uh, mixed. Um, the late, great Gary Stewart, who worked at Rhino with me, was a wonderful guy, um, was the head of A&R at Rhino. And when he was, it was easy. Uh, when he left, I remember, for instance, I had bought a bunch of stuff from Danny Fields. And in these, again, I had to rent a studio to find out what was on these boxes of things. I found the uh, copy master tape of the first Stooges album with John Cale's mixes that had never been released. They'd been remixed um, by Jack Holzman and Iggy. And so I went to Rhino and had a meeting saying, look, this is incredible. You can release this as a double album with the mixes everybody knows and these John Cale mixes, which are legendary, but nobody's ever heard. And one of the guys at Rhino, who I'd known for a very long time, said, well, why should we buy those from you? We can go remix these ourselves. And I was like, you don't get it. This is American history at a high level. Uh, you've got to put this out. And they bought the tape from me and sparingly would put out a couple of tracks at a time and eventually release the whole thing. So sometimes it's really, I mean, I had Charlie Parker outtakes and I called Verve and said, you know, I've got these false starts and Charlie Parker with strings outtakes. Well, jazz doesn't sell. And it's like, look, I'm not talking about Johnny Hodges outtakes. It's Charlie Parker. And eventually they bought them. But sometimes it's the myth of Sisyphus. You're rolling a boulder up a hill. And sometimes people like Jeff Rosen get it instantly. It's like, yes, we've got to buy that from you. You know, you talk about Gary Stewart, anybody who was at his house, it was, you know, it was an unending stream of vinyl records. I think about my records and I say, I'll die and my girlfriend or my sister just throw it out. So 
My nightmare. <laughs> oh, believe me, it is. I say, you have no idea how valuable these things Put it in the will, Bob. I did. <laughs> okay. So what happened to Gary Stewart's records? Well, <laughs> what happened to Gary Stewart's records is Gary Stewart, who was ultimately the head of A&R at Rhino, and then he uh, ran iTunes at the beginning for Apple, was a frequent customer of Rhino Records, who I befriended. And he, I kept trying to hire him to come to work to the store because he spent so much time there. He was working at McDonald's uh, and was a management trainee and uh, felt like that was a greater career path than working in a record store. And though he would, till the end of his life, deny that the, these two things were connected, the McDonald's got held up twice. And the second time he was locked in a meat locker with a bunch of employees and eventually decided, okay, I'll come to work for Rhino. And uh, excelled and became, at, at Richard and Harold's feet, the guy who put together all those incredible reissues that Rhino became famous for. And uh, we remained close friends till the end of his life, which was about three years ago. So when Gary died, I had been uh, in close contact with him and I had been in close contact with his uh, cousin who inherited his estate. And I said, look, if you need any help figuring out what to do with any of his possessions, I'll be happy to help. Yes, I do. She lives in Chicago. So I went over there and uh, uh, went through his collection. And I, my idea was we should take all of the Rhino reissues, which there were a colossal number, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and donate them to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they really document the birth of the reissue culture in America, in the world, really. And they were very excited about that. His cousin approved. So all of his, a copy of everything he ever did is at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Then I had an idea that we should save some of the records that he was obsessed with and give them to his friends. So artists like Elvis Costello, for instance, or Sparks. Uh, I, I bought those records from the estate and made up little cards saying, this record was owned by Gary Stewart, and I distributed them to about 75 of his friends so people could just have a reminder of Gary. And then the rest were sold to a friend of Gary's and mine, Bob Say, who has a record store, who sold them. Now, it's a very tragic story, and you seem to have been closest to Gary at the end. Was this anomalous, his death? Or is this evidence of our era? Because I certainly know a lot of people who had very big jobs in the music business, but when the time came with the, uh, the game of musical chairs, there was no longer a seat for them, have hit very hard times. So is he evidence of that really, or is, you know, he was a unique guy and none of those laws apply? You know, Gary took his own life. He had been suffering from mental illness. He was depression. He was um, working on it head on, working with therapists. Uh, he didn't tell a lot of people about it, but I knew about it. Um, and I think ultimately he just couldn't um, see the forest for the trees. It's one of the great tragedies of my lifetime. Um, I think Gary had very strong feelings about what he wanted to do and what he didn't want to do. 
and he was the antithesis. I mean, I was someone who was happy to work for a record company and market and package things, even though a lot of them weren't to my personal taste. I could find, you know, I didn't go home and listen to Van Halen records, but I could appreciate what Van Halen were. Um, Gary didn't want to work on things that he wasn't personally into. And I think that that is not the trajectory that people are looking for who are running record companies. You know, it's become much and much more of a bean counting mentality, forgive the expression. And, uh, you know, the Netflix culture is the most extreme example of it. And I don't think Gary had a place in that world. And I think that world repulsed Gary. He didn't want to have a place in that world. Just going back over your decades in the business, uh, what can you tell us about the people who ultimately got squeezed out, how they're, I mean, first they all went to work in the video business. Then they all went to work in real estate and video business died. Real estate's really competitive. I certainly know a lot of people who have hard, been on hard times. What's your experience been with people? It's the same. Um, it, it's, you know, we lived this charmed life where we had expense accounts and traveled all around the world and hung out with bands. And, you know, my experience was I figured everybody in the music business had to be just as crazy about music as I was. And when I got to AM, I found out that was absolutely not the case. There were a lot of people like Jeff Aroff and Steve Baker who were obsessed with music, but there were a lot of people who just ended up in the music business because they were good salespeople or marketing people or advertising people who didn't live and breathe this stuff the way you and I do. Um, so I feel lucky that I could transition straight in. You know, I, I, I've, I'm still entirely consumed by music all day long, doing, you know, writing books about music and consulting for artists, selling, buying and selling this stuff, researching this stuff. Um, some of the people who weren't as obsessed with it as you say, found other careers. Some of them have been very successful. Some of them uh, are working very hard uh, to reinvent themselves. And, uh, you know, I think this golden age that we lived through, we were very fortunate to live through, but the business, as you know, better than anybody, has changed uh, dramatically. Okay. Speaking of which, you wrote a book about the jazz clubs of the 40s and 50s. And of the books you've written, that is the most riveting because it is a window into a world that not only happened before I was born, that I really wasn't aware of. And I certainly know Q and a lot of big jazzers, etc. My question, I always viewed the rock era as the Renaissance. Okay, there was only one Renaissance. They painted and sculpted after that. But there was one renaissance. And then I'm reading your book and I'm saying, well, maybe, you know, sounds change. What is your perspective of the continuum and where we are today? I don't know, but I subscribe to the. Hmm. Different kinds of music had different periods of time where there was a renaissance. I find myself fairly uncompelled 
by most of the music happening today, but I don't dive that deep into it. And I think that's generational. Um, I think the jazz clubs and, and the jazz era I wrote about was absolutely a cultural renaissance and a societal renaissance at a time where, um, as I discovered talking to Quincy and Sonny Rollins, racism started to first break down in America. I don't know what's coming next. I think it's kind of a fool's game to try and predict this. Um, I, I would have never thought that at 80, Bob Dylan would making, be making great provocative records. I'm really into a British folk singer named Shirley Collins, who is also in her early 80s and released an album last year that was probably my favorite record along with the Dylan album of the year, two 80-year-olds. I mean, who would have saw that coming? Um, you never know where the next great thing is coming from. I think anybody who thinks they've got this all figured out may for a short period of time, but the next great thing can be around the corner. So I'm generally a pretty optimistic guy about that. Okay. From the internet era, which we'll say post 2000 and the hip hop era, which really started in the eighties, but gained significant traction in the nineties. Is any of that stuff worth something? And are you involved in it or not? Uh, I'll answer your second question first. I'm not involved in it generally. I find if I stick to my lane, I do really well. And if I start trying to go deep into something I don't have a personal affinity for, like hip hop, it can be a fraught situation. There are lots of hip-hop records worth a lot of money. There's a, uh, a label called Daup, D-A-U-P-E in England, who releases limited edition hip-hop records that almost instantly sell out and go for $500 to $1,000. Um, a lot of early hip-hop stuff, a lot of sample stuff goes for a lot of money. Uh, a lot of punk records from the 90s goes go for a lot of money. Um a lot of these limited edition record store day records or, uh, you know, an artist like Taylor Swift will put out a record where a certain retailer will get a certain vinyl color and they'll make a thousand of them go for a lot of money. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of current and recent records that are very collectible. Okay. Now, I remember in the 90s, you bid at an auction, you got a roll in the steam room at Seinfeld and you gave me a uh, script from that episode that you pulled off the table. My, so I know that it always hasn't been records. So how far afield will you go? And you certainly do posters and other music related stuff. How do you find that stuff, assess that stuff? I mean, a record, there's there's one free wheel and there are various iterations, but there's an endless supply of posters and signatures and all kinds of stuff. It's a lot of the signatures are fake, a huge percentage. Like if you go on, I think there are something like 12 authentic American Beatles albums that have been signed, that have surfaced, 12. Yet if you go on eBay, you'll find numerous ones. Uh, it's an extremely fraught area. So what I bring to it is nearly 50 years of, well, actually more than 50 years of looking at this stuff and expertise and the ability to research it um, and discern 
whether something is genuine and you begin to develop an internal algorithm for, yeah, that's rarer than it looks. I'll buy it and spend some time sitting with it and letting it marinate my mind and researching it and seeing what I can find out and contextualizing it. That's the thing I enjoy the most about what I do. Um, you know, finding, uh, I bought one of John Coltrane's saxophones at an auction sold by his family. And I was able to find records he played it on, live records. I was able to find photographs of him using it. I was able to find posters from the Japanese tour where he played it. I bought on eBay a Japanese magazine that the guy who had been the band boy uh, in the 70s discovered pictures he'd taken of the tour. And, and this Japanese magazine had 30 pictures, and I was able to find three or four with the saxophone or the saxophone case on a rack in a train with Coltrane sitting next to it. I love that detective work aspect of it. And I think that's where I can add value to things as well. I love the research. I love figuring out if things are authentic or not authentic. I love figuring out, is this pressing actually what somebody's selling as it as, or have they mischaracterized it? Uh, once a year, I find something on eBay. Now, I may spend two hours a, a day on eBay or an hour a day on eBay. And once a year, I'll find something really incredible. But you've got to put in a lot of hours to get that, to get to that point. I bought the guitar that Bob Dylan played at the Clinton inauguration on eBay, which had been offered with a $5,000 or $6,000 buy it now, and nobody bought it. And uh, I was able to buy it research it, get letters from Gibson proving it was real, do a match of the tortoiseshell headstock with one of the foremost rare guitar experts in the world. And I just love the treasure hunting aspect of it, the research aspect. Okay, so you, you bought the saxophone, you bought the guitar, you went on an adventure, which all of us music nerds know is cool, but in the back of your mind, are you building an asset to sell and adding value to that asset? Sometimes, yes. Sometimes it's something I want for myself. I sold the Coltrane saxophone twice, actually. I sold it once, bought it back from the guy, kept it about 10 years, and just recently sold it again. Um, the Dylan guitar I've had for 10 years or so. I've loaned it to various museum exhibitions. Uh, at some point, I'll sell it, um, but I like having it. Uh, sometimes I'm buying something just to sell like that felonious monk program or, you know, all day I'm buying stuff or selling stuff. Okay. But things like posters, programs, other merch, how do you find that? How invested are you in that? And what's that like relative to vinyl? Uh, some of those things go for crazy money. There's some stuff I collect myself, which you can see on the walls of my um, office here. Some of the stuff I'm buying just to sell, some of the stuff I'm buying to keep, some of the stuff I'm buying to think about. Uh, it, it runs the gamut. Um, but people are there, there are crazy collectors for posters. There are crazy collectors for autographs. There are crazy collectors for uh, handbills. Um, I have a, 
uh, whammy bar that popped off of Jimi Hendrix's guitar framed on the wall and went straight into the uh, lap of a guy who was sitting in the pit photographing Hendrix for Rolling Stone. Um, it, it really is just all over the place. And sometimes I think I want something, but somebody comes along. I, I really like placing things in the right collections. And sometimes somebody who's got an incredible collection will just be desperate to buy something for me. And I think, you know, I've got it. I've had it for 10 years. I love it, but time to let that move on. I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm not going to, uh, you know, at some point this stuff will leave me either dead or alive. So it's good when you can make somebody happy. So these worlds are always small, like the music business itself. How many of Jeff, I mean, you may be at the pinnacle, but how many of you are there out there who are making a full-time business or spending a lot of time buying and selling music memorabilia? There are a lot of people doing that, but I think there aren't a lot of people doing it at my level who can just, you know, Somebody's got a, this happened to me a, a year ago. Somebody's got a Jim Morrison handwritten manuscript of Strange Days. I'll buy that and I will pay you a lot of money for that. And I will sit on that and let it marinate and wait till the right person comes along and not feel desperate to flip it. There aren't a lot of people doing it at my level. I don't want to sound no, self-aggrieved. No, no, I, I didn't mean that. I'm just trying to get a landscape. Are the buyers, do you ultimately know all the buyers or really the buyers are all over the world? They're individuals. They might buy once and forget. Or as I say, you know, well, let's stay there. Are they the same hungry people? No, there's, there's a lot of people who are repeat customers who I deal with and who I get something and pick up the phone or send an email saying, I just got this. I thought you might be interested. There are a lot of people who might buy two things a year from me, but I know who they are, and there are 50% of it is people I've never dealt with before buying something. And you establish a price, certainly on the stuff. How do, Okay. How much is buy it as it is on eBay? How much is auction? And how much, when someone's interested, is there haggling? Almost always I set a price for something and just wait for the right person to come along. I'm a patient guy, as I've said. If somebody wants to make me an offer and makes a compelling case and it's in the ballpark and I've had the thing for a long time and I'm not attached to it, I'll consider it. But a lot of these things, you know, when you get to the memorabilia, you're never going to see another one. And I like having a website and uh, eBay listings with stuff people can't find everywhere else. So I'm not generally uh, a motivated seller. And, you know, typically what happens is you put up something really big and you might get a, I'll pay you 50% right now. And as a friend of mine said, that's what the delete button is made for. <laughs> Those people don't even get a response. Um, uh, if it's, God, I'm a huge doors collector and this is the one thing I'm missing and I can't afford it but I could pay you off over a year. Sure. No problem. You want to help people out. And you talk a couple of times about buying stuff back. How often does that happen? And what is the person's motivation? Doesn't happen very often. In the case of the Coltrane saxophone, someone was starting a new business and wanted 
some capital, and it was a big number. In a couple of weeks ago, I bought three great things back from a regular customer line who had was actually writing, wrote me an email and was very apologetic that he wanted, was inquiring about selling this stuff back as if I would be somehow offended. And I wasn't in any way. I was excited about uh, buying these three things back. And he wanted to buy uh, a very rare photograph uh, of baseball players in the Negro Leagues. And so, you know, people have differing collecting priorities and he was trying to fund the purchase of something else and I was thrilled to get the stuff back. And how do you establish a price for getting it back? Just as you would establish a price for buying something. But in this case, because the guy was a good customer of mine, I paid him more than I ordinarily would, but enough that I could make money enough to make it worth my while. So less than he bought it from you. Yes. You know, you begin to develop an internal algorithm for this pricing. Okay. So tell us about writing books and that part of your business. I've done three, uh, 101 essential rock records, which is basically classic vinyl porn with, uh, I interviewed some recording artists that I admire about records that were life-changing to them. Uh, the second one was a history of the stooges that is centered around a cl- my collection of Stooges memorabilia and that of a friend of mine and a a series of interviews I did with Iggy Pop talking about the Stooges. And the third one was the jazz club book. Each of them have different origin stories. I never had any aspiration to do a book whatsoever. Uh, But I have a friend who has an art bookstore, Lee Kaplan, who worked at Rhino with me. And one day he showed me this book of rare photography books called the Book of 101 Books. And this person had assembled these impossibly rare photography books and uh, written an essay about each book and uh, had a photograph of the cover and then a couple of spreads from the book. And I went, wow, that would be great to do for records. And I kind of thought about it, but thought, you know, I don't have a burning passion to do this. And a friend of mine, Brian Ray Turcotte, a customer who had written a, a punk rock flyer book called Fucked Up and Photocopied. It was one of these pet rock sensations. This book just went crazy. It's in something like its 20th printing and has sold nearly 100,000 copies about punk flyers. And he was at my house one day looking through some new flyers and uh, told me that his book had been such a success that the publisher had given him an imprint. And if I had any book ideas, he wanted to hear them. I said, well, I've been carrying this one around to do a book of 101 classic vinyl records a ripoff of this book of 101 photography books and uh, told him what it was. And what I added to it was the interviews with artists. He goes, I'll get your book deal. And he did. And so we did it together and uh, I interviewed Graham Nash, and Iggy and Suzanne Vega and some other artists I'd worked with Johnny Marr, people I knew. It had these lush photo spreads of the earliest pressing from the artist's country of origin. It's totally nerdy. And some of those are exceptionally rare records. And then I did a spread on my collection of Jimi Hendrix's records, a few other things like that, band album covers, spread. And it was very successful. It's in its fourth printing now. And uh, it was a lot of work, but it was fun and people really enjoyed it. And uh, so I was happy to do it. And I thought, I'm never doing another book again. And it was too much work. Glad I did it. 
And I had this collection of Stooges memorabilia, a very large collection. And another friend of mine had an equally large collection of stuff that nobody had ever seen. He kept bugging me to do a book. And I kept saying, no, not interested. And one day I kind of had this idea where I had worked with Iggy at AM. and We'd become very friendly. And I knew he was this great raconteur. And I thought, I know what to do. We'll pick a hundred things from our Stooges memorabilia that nobody's ever seen. And we'll go interview Iggy and just record what he has to say about each thing. And that'll be the book. And uh, my friend said, great. And uh, so I got in contact with Iggy, who had really liked my 101 Rock Records book and really liked what I said about the Stooges. And I'd included uh, two Stooges albums. And we worked out a deal with him to do it. And the idea was we would go to Miami, or, yeah, Miami and where he lives, and for eight hours, show him these pictures and record his recollections. And my, I, I thought, you know, maybe he'd have five minutes to say about each thing, and then we'd fill in what the things he didn't remember with a little bit of captions, and that would be it. It would be simple. So I prepared this 25-page document of uh, questions to ask him about based on these images. And the idea was we were going to surprise him. You know, he, he wouldn't see these things before him. And a couple days before, he said, you know, I'd really like to see these things. And okay, so I FedExed them to him. And he sent me an email saying, this is fantastic. I'm really excited about this. I've never seen almost any of these things before. Great. So my friend Johan, who I was doing this with, and I, who had the other collection, went down to Miami and we sat in this little, uh, Iggy has two houses. One is his workhouse. And that's where we went and sat in this little uh, thatched roofed hut out by a creek in the backyard of his place. And, uh, you know, we got through the pleasantries and I showed him the first thing and he just started talking and I'm looking at my watch and it's 15 minutes and I've got eight hours to talk to him and I'm doing the math going, this is never going to work. So I interrupt him and I said, listen, we got to keep these answers pretty short or else I'm going to be more than eight hours. Uh, no, I don't want that. And he'd been re very reflective about the Stooges. Ron Ashton, who was the guitar player, had died. Scott Ashton was in poor health. And I think he'd been thinking a lot about them. And I was a comfortable person to talk to because he knew me from the record company experience in my previous book. And I think he figured, you know, if I'm ever going to talk about this period in depth, which he never had, this is the situation where I'm going to do it. But the thing I hadn't planned on was this unbelievable memory. So I'm in the second and third thing, and we're at 45 minutes, and I stop him and I said, listen, I think I'm going to change plans. I think we're going to just do an oral history of the Stooges and, and show you this stuff and, and work around that. And at some point, I may, may need to do fill-in interviews. And he was like, fine. I mean, he was having a, a ball. So we talked for eight or nine hours. And uh, it, it was, I've never, I've talked to a lot of artists. I've never met anybody with the recall he has, which when you factor in the fact that this guy abused himself as much as anybody is almost unfathomable. Um, so you'd show him something and he'd say, all right, here's what I remember and give you whatever he'd remember. And that was maybe 50 or 60% of the time. And then another 20% of the time he'd say, hmm. You could almost see the gears turning in his head and he'd say, all right, I don't remember much, but 
and he'd tell you. And then maybe 10 or 15% of the time he'd go, no idea, don't remember anything. So you knew he wasn't bullshitting. You knew he was telling you the truth. And uh, I got home and just went, this is unbelievable. And there were a few fill-in kind of things I did. And we had this abundance of visuals. And that became the book. And that's actually, uh, that was published by Third Man, Jack White's company. And Ben Blackwell, who is one of the guys who runs it, is a Stooges fanatic. And so that was great. And in August, they will release a paperback version of that with a bunch of additional content. Uh, and, and Henry Rollins and I, who's a Stooges super fan, interview each other about why the Stooges are so important. Um, and then I thought, okay, I'm really done. I am never doing this again. It is just too much work for me. And then I went, I, I was uh, introduced to a guy who had a huge collection of jazz memorabilia who was in San Diego. And the memorabilia was in his safe deposit box. So uh, two or three times I would go down to this guy's house. We would drive to the Bank of America in uh, San Diego. We would go into one of those little rooms that you can go into, take your safe deposit box in. And he would bring out a cart with this series of safe deposit boxes. And he had just bought stuff for 30 or 40 years and dropped them in the boxes as he was buying. So it was in no, the, the organization was as he bought stuff. So I'm going through these boxes, like here's a Charlie Parker autograph. I want that. Here's a couple of Dave Brubeck tickets. I don't care about those. Oh, look, here's a photo from Birdland with Count Basie and some fans. I want that. And I start. so the, these jazz clubs in the 40s and 50s had in-house photographers who would take a picture of you and your girlfriend or your date or your party at your table. They'd go in the back room and develop it. And at the end of the evening, you could buy it for a buck in a little custom portfolio that had Birdland artwork. And these things were just fantastic. I'd never seen one of them before. And uh, so um, as I'm going through this stuff, I've got 20, 30, 40, 50 of these things, all from different jazz clubs around America. I'm thinking, I've been in this business for 40 years at the time, 45 years. I've never seen a single one of these. These have got to be impossibly rare. And they're really evocative of these clubs. So um, I end up buying nearly 200 from him, along with a bunch of other stuff. And while I'm going, the first day, as I'm looking at these things going, he should be in a book somewhere. You know, they're just too good. So I um, piled these things up on a bookcase and just was staring at them. And I engaged in this staring contest with them. Like, we want to be a book. No, I said I'd never do another book. People need to see these. And as I started Googling, I realized there are no books of these things and Occasionally online, you can find one or two of them, but there are no collections of them. And it's really black history. You see black people, white people. It's the birth of selfie culture. You see Louis Armstrong posing with a bunch of white fans or Count Basie. Um, and I it just eventually they wore me down and, and I decided these things needed to be seen. So I thought, OK, you know, I'm, I know a fair amount about jazz, but I'm certainly no expert on jazz clubs. What do I do? So I read 40 books. I interviewed Quincy Jones and Sonny Rollins about what it was like to play in these clubs at the time. And I kind of casually said to Quincy, what was the racial situation? It was fantastic. Everybody got along. 
This was where black people and white people could hang out together. It was the first place that happened. Uh, That's shocking. I've never read anything about that. Uh, And and he said to me, you know, racism would have been over in the 50s if people had paid attention to the jazz guys. So I'm talking to Sonny Rollins. And it's just, it's unfathomable to me that he could interview these people. You know, I used Quincy. I used my Mo leverage to interview Quincy. Then I used the fact that I'd interviewed Quincy to get to Sonny Rollins, who was wonderful. And I said, so Sonny, Quincy told me, you know, this thing about the racism. And it was like he'd been waiting 70 years for somebody to ask him this question. It's absolutely true. You know, nobody paid attention to who you, what color you were, the musicians, the people, uh, in the audiences, everybody got along. Now, you might go outside, and it wasn't the same way, but in these clubs. And so that became a, a kind of through line in this book. And the next interview, I thought, okay, I want to talk to somebody who was in the audience. And, you know, to be at a jazz club at the end of the 40s, you're 90 years old. Now, Sonny Rollins and Quincy were both sneaking in. So I found Dan Morgenstern, who is the preeminent jazz historian in the world, who's now about 92. And he came to America as a refugee from Nazi Germany, was obsessed with jazz, started uh, going to these clubs when he was 17, sneaking in. And because he was European, uh, he was a very close observer to it. And the musicians were very interested in talking to him as he was interested in talking to the musicians. And he ends up being the editor of Downbeat, and has written all these many books and runs the Rutgers Jazz Institute for 40 years. So I could talk to Sonny and Quincy about what it was like on stage. And Dan, what it was like to be in the audience. And it was just amazing. And then I spoke to Jason Moran, who's a younger uh, pianist and composer, who's the head of the Kennedy Center Jazz Program and a MacArthur Genius Grant winner, and is obsessed with jazz history. And he had never seen a single one of these. And they just blew his mind. So I got his perspective. And then I spoke to a woman named Robin Given, who was a cultural critic. Pulitzer Prize winning culture critic for the Washington Post, but is great at deconstructing photographs. So I keep saying to my wife, I am never doing this again. And the asterisk is, unless I can find somebody to do half the work, uh, uh, a lot of the heavy lifting, because it's just a lot of work. But, you know, they were all successful, and that's in its second printing as well. And the last thing I'll say is, I feel like with the Stooges book and the Jazz book, they're important in the sense that I got Iggy to talk about the history of the band who invented punk rock in more depth than anybody ever has. And I doubt he will ever do it again. So I feel like I documented something that wouldn't have been documented had I not done it. And the same with the jazz book. I mean, to find somebody who was there at the time in 10 years is going to be impossible just because of the age demographics of it. So I feel like I got that story down and documented this scene and the racial situation before it became too late. Now, these are all very well done, expensive coffee table books. Are these just labors of love or is this a business? It is a total labor of love. When uh, my first book came out, 101 Essential Rock Records, I said to my wife, I've now mastered making $5 an hour. (laughs) Because it had four printings, I revised that to I've now mastered making $20 an hour. But no, you, this is a labor of love and getting it down while it can be gotten down. Now, what is a typical day like, finally, 
And is it like being in the music business where it's essentially 24-7 or you set limits on it? So give us what is going on every day in the life of Jeff Gold. I try to set limits. It's nearly impossible. Um, I wake up, I come downstairs, I make my wife coffee and I make me tea. I get on my iPad. I look at the top selling records on eBay the day before, just as kind of a wake up. I've got three websites with memorabilia that I look at every day. And once every six months, I buy something for them. I look at Expecting Rain, which is an incredible aggregator of Bob Dylan links from the day before and general music links from the day before. I look at the New York Times, the uh, uh, LA Times, and uh, maybe a couple of other news sites. I wake up, I have breakfast, I come upstairs, I start answering email. Generally, it will be, hey, I've got this I want to sell because people find something they think might be rare, Google it, and I show up high in the results. One out of 20 turns out to be interesting, and I end up buying one out of 30 maybe. Um, I've sold a couple of things. I email the person, uh, letting them know we're shipping once a week these days, uh, but that I've received payment and it will go out. Um, my assistant comes one day a week. I pull the orders for her. She boxes and ships stuff. She takes photographs and templates stuff on my web website and eBay. I might write those things up, do a lot of deep research into a project or two I have going on. Uh, I might get a call about an archive. Uh, six or seven o'clock, my wife is tearing me away from the computer going, it's time for dinner. It's time for dinner. I meditate a couple times a day. Uh, I try to go out to lunch once a day just to force myself to leave my computer because left to my own devices, I can spend way too much time on this stuff. And uh, I'll read a, a rock book or watch a music documentary or read the paper or sometimes occasionally a non-rock book, uh, go to bed. And what is your holy grail? One of the one or two things you're looking to get, whether available or unavailable. Happily, I don't have any holy grails, but I have some holy grails that I own. Okay, what are those? I have one of Dylan's handwritten manuscripts, Do I Want You, which is my favorite, one of my favorite Dylan songs. And I have one for Absolutely Sweet Marie. And I have uh, the manuscript for This Wheels on Fire. So those are holy grails for me. I have, as I said, about 25 of Hendrix's records. Those two Dylan records are holy grails for me. Uh, got a great Coltrane poster from the 60s on my wall. I've got a signed Beatles program from the first uh, U.S. tour. I've got a, a Times Era changing first pressing signed to me. Uh, Signed to you. That's stuff that floats. Signed to you by Dylan. Yeah. Do you have a relationship with Dylan? No, I met him one time. Oddly enough, at, at, there's a place called the Brentwood Country Mart on 26th of course, and Ready Chick, about a mile from my. Yeah, Ready Chick. I've been going there since I was four, uh, over 60 years. I probably, when I was a kid, would go there four times a week. And in 1977, I'm there eating my ready chick and I glance up and there's Bob Dylan wearing a ratty leather jacket with stringy hair and three kids. 
and they go into the toy store, which is my childhood toy store. And I am in shock. And so I think, do I have time to go home and get an album? No. So I go to my car and I get a pad of paper and a pen. And I wait about half an hour and Dylan comes out with the kids and he's holding a child's twirling baton with a little ribbon around it that he must have bought as a, so his kids were going to a birthday party or something. And I summoned up my courage and I said, excuse me, Bob, I hate to bother you. Could I have your autograph? And he looks at me and holds up this baton with his right hand and goes, I can't sign. (laughs) And I go, well, I'm really sorry to bother you. Uh, but your music has meant so much to me through the years. Uh, you know, thanks for everything, you know? And he says, well, what's your favorite song and why? I go like a Rolling Stone. Cause it kind of marks the, you know, the uh, journey from acoustic to electric and Tom Wilson's production. I just acquitted myself very quickly and showed him. I knew what I was talking about. I said, you're going to Japan, aren't you? For the first time, he goes, how do you know that? Well, I work in a record store and we get Billboard magazine. And I saw an article about it and he sat and chatted with me for about, I don't know, five minutes. And his kids are running around and eventually he looks at them and goes, I got to go. And I hold out this piece of paper and this pen and he lifts up his hand with the baton again as if to say, sorry, I, my, my hands are full. And he walks away, which today is such an amazing story because I got my five minutes with Bob Dylan he wouldn't sign an autograph for me, but I've got, you know, lyric manuscripts and appraised his archive and all this stuff. So an autograph is the least thing I need. So if someone wants to check your stuff out, whether just for their own interest or to buy stuff, how do they find your stuff? Uh, on Twitter and Instagram, I am at Record Mecca. I, I don't look at it. My assistant does. Uh, the way to get through to me is through the website, Record Mecca, R-E-C-O-R-D-M-E-C-C-A.com. And I write about issues of interest to collectors, very nerdball stuff at recordmecca.com slash blog. Okay, Jeff, good to see you. Thanks so much for taking the time. This is something people are aware of. Now we've gone to the absolute source. Thanks again for doing this. My pleasure, Bob. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsex. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Delve into the visceral world of hip-hop with the Gangster Chronicles, hosted by MC8 and Big Steel. It's every Thursday, a podcast that aims to unravel the intricate tapestry of one of music's most influential and misunderstood subgenres, gangster rap. Let's go. Gangster Chronicles unpacks the evolution of this uniquely American art form, offering listeners a comprehensive understanding of the significance this genre holds. Listen to the Gangster Chronicles on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry, the world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.